Today's a, a pretty special day. The last time I was in here, uh, I was a little wet. I was up in our baptismal with Bowen, and uh, Eric had kind of trapped me because uh, he wanted to, to celebrate with you all five years. Uh, and then they cut the mic off before I could tell you thank you. Uh, so I wanted to take uh, this opportunity this morning to say thank you. But I realized uh, when I woke up and uh, I looked in the mirror, I've officially got gray hairs. Um, I was shaving, and I looked at it, and I said, that's no longer country gravy that's stuck in my beard. Like, those are true grays. I called my wife on the way to the church this morning. I said, I'm old. Like, I've, I've hit that ripe age of old now, which means, like, I can start feeling the nostalgia. Like, when I start thinking back in the good old days, like, it actually feels like the good old days. Like, when my knees don't pop the same, you know. But I wanted to start off by saying thank you. Um, Thank you for investing in our kids at the church. Thank you for investing in our community. Uh, thank you for investing in both myself and Hannah. Um, our family loves y'all. It was July 14th, uh, 2018. Uh, we, we literally moved into a house back behind some cows, about a rock throw away from zebras. And if you told me there were zebras in Floyd County, I would have laughed at you. Um, we're sitting there. Uh, Steve Litton, precious as can be, looked at me and said, uh, you have three chances. If you don't know my name after three chances, you're gone. Uh, come to find out, probably the one of the sweetest souls here at the church, but I was terrified. Um, uh, Clay Graham blessed our house with the Go Dogs, and immediately uh, Nick Hopper decided to curse it by saying, Roll Tide. And uh, I had not gotten, I had no idea what I got myself into. Uh, when Hannah and I had, had come to Rome for the very first time to, to kind of visit the church, uh, we ate at El Zarape with Eric. Uh, found out that's one of like 44 Mexican restaurants in town. Uh, we drove past 17 churches before we ever got here. Like when we left like the proper city limits of Rome and we're, we're traveling uh, down Maple and we're like, hey, there's another church, not Lindale. There's another church, not Lindale. Like we drove past a sign that said, welcome to Lindale and didn't realize we drove past a sign that said, welcome to Lindale. And it was because of that, we had no idea where we were going. So I say all that, thank you, and a thousand times over. But it was five years ago from today that uh, I got up, drove down to the office, walked through the front doors, and Sylvia greeted me with a smile. Dan was diligently working, uh, pre preparing for the music for the next weekend and the, the coming school year, and when we would go back to two-service schedule, two schedule um, Angie, the, our, our most tenured member of our office was spending some vacation time with her family, and Eric, after probably the craziest summer he has had, uh, transitioning to from student ministry and kind of overseeing all of that to senior pastor in April to doing a vacation Bible school and kids camp and student camp, was on a well-deserved family vacation, very much like right now. So the office was quiet. It was calm. I spent the whole first day trying to figure out what the Wi-Fi password was and how to get in my email. <laughs> um, I later found out that I could text this guy named Jason and he would hook me up with all the details, but I didn't have that number either because, again, I didn't know anybody. Now, the second day got a little bit easier. I looked over and Angie had left me a little note along with uh, a school janitor's rings full of keys 
Now, I say this not, not to, to put any flack on her, but there are about 100 keys on there, and it, they may or may not work in a door here on our property. <laughs> so I spent the second day walking around our 100-plus years of memories at this church, um, trying every key to every keyhole to see if it would work knowing there's got to be a story behind every single one of these keys. Um, I'm pretty sure I found every key that doesn't work and no keys that did work to get into the one space I needed to get into, which was the kids' building. (laughs) But man, it was an experience. Day three, uh, I found this book that had the history of the church and the community and found out that, like, First Baptist Lindell was like one of three churches that had kind of conglomerated together along with the Methodist Church, and the, there was this rotation of pastors, and finally one pastor said, you know what, we're ready to branch off, and this and this happened, and there are some pictures of uh, some of your faces, um, still beautiful as now, but maybe a little bit younger, uh, that were inside this book, and I'm reminded of this because we're, we're in the 125th year right now of Lindell, and that's a, a glorious thing, and I'm, I'm ready to celebrate that come the fall, but I was in this world of an unknown. So my first day and my second day and my third day went pretty well. Day four, just as quiet. Day five was an off day. Six was an off day. Seven would come to, to be my uh, most exciting Sunday ever. Had not really ever gone in the cabin before didn't really know our kids, Uh, approximately about 2.4 of the kids, I knew their names, and it was because I happened to visit them when they were at Centricab, and one was the pastor's son, so like that was an obligation to know off the front. Knew no adults. Um, I spent the first probably five months thinking that Bonnie Rampley and Allison Watson were sisters, um, and not Allison and Jess, but like, I mean, I've learned from all those mistakes that Sunday comes, and We have service, and there's Sunday school, and we get out there, and we have kids' church, and uh, within that first Sunday, I had a kid take his shirt and his shoes off and start climbing the chimney, and another one drop his drawers and start peeing on the playground in true country boy style. (laughs) Um, I went home. I looked at my wife. I said, I'm scared. I'm terrified. And then I hadn't even got my brain wrapped around what does it look like to, ha- like to work in a nursery because babies at that point still terrified me. I had always been the guy that had the answers. Uh, I was the person that if you had a question, I could give you what you needed to know, and I knew nothing about what I was getting myself into. I had been teaching, and in an elementary school, I, I kind of had it together. I knew I wanted to serve in ministry. That was like a 10-year plan. It became like a a 10-week plan really quickly when the Lord opened up this opportunity. Um, And I had to rely on him even through being terrified. I was terrified because I didn't know the answers, uh, but that that wasn't really a true fear of mine. I joke with the kids on Sunday mornings that uh, my wife Hannah is scared of mustard on her cheeseburger and that I'm scared of garden lizards. Um, That may not be a joke, but... I think back of the unknown of that Sunday, of the unknown kids, parents, the nursery, how to handle when the kid is peeing on the playground. But I know that the creator of all things 
while we mess up, while we don't know, still loves us. And he sent his son who lived a perfect life and gave that life for you and for me so that we don't have to pay a debt of death from sin, but instead we can have eternal life and know God. But even in that knowledge, sometimes we're still lost, we're still broken, and we're still afraid. So uh, to introduce uh, the, the meat of what our, our message is going to be about, I want to talk about some, some fears. Some fears, uh, some common ones, some that might be a little Lindell exclusive, some that are appropriate for today, and some for our message. So the first fear uh, is acrophobia. It's the, the fear of heights. People don't like tall things. Uh, I quickly conquered that when uh, riding roller coasters. Uh, my wife and I went to Seattle for our honeymoon and being able to look out over the city knowing that there was a safety guard that was there preventing me from falling to my death. Um, that fear quickly was gone. Claustrophobia. The fear of closed spaces. I'm a big guy. Every, sma- every space is a closed space for me. Had to quickly learn that one. Uh, for some of our, our Lindell friends here, uh, I'm going to butcher the name of this one. It's, it's Anna Today Phobia, which is the fear of ducks watching you. <laughs> um, you also have uh, Lipidopterophobia, which is the fear of butterflies. Uh, appropriately for this morning, we have Enoclophobia, which is the fear of crowds. We have glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. But for this coming weekend, we've got nyctophobia, which is the fear of the dark. Darkness is probably when polling, if it was Family Feud style, and you say, ask 100 kids what their biggest fear is, uh, they're afraid of the dark. We have nightlights we plug in the wall. It's remarkable what a little star plugged into an outlet can do to the mentality of a kid. They feel safe. There's protection. That $6.99 hanging on the little plastic clip at Walmart has just saved you nights and nights and hours and hours of sleep as parents. That nightlight, it's incredible. But it's not because it has magical powers. It's because in total darkness, that little bit of light shows up. A single candle and within one mile of complete darkness removes the fact that it's complete and total darkness. Uh, when you're in a, a world full of darkness, any hint of light mean, no longer means that it's darkness. It's just mildly dark. There is still light that is present. There are moments in our lives and places that we've been that we feel are really, truly dark, where there's absolute zero sources of light, and it becomes very unsettling. We lose context, we become disoriented, and if we're honest, we get very scared. But the darkness that I'm talking about today is not just being in the dark, but it's being surrounded of the absence of light. There is darkness that we encounter all the time in our world. There's darkness from depression, darkness from addiction, darkness from hopelessness, darkness of violence, oppression and lostness, The darkness of a world without good. A world without good is a world without God, and that truly is darkness. 
Now, if I ended the sermon right there, I'd probably be fired because that would not be anything of inspiring or anything right there that falls along with Scripture because we know that at the end of the day that, that God is the light. And that light right there, it's not just any light. It's an overwhelming light. It's an all-consuming, it's perfectly pure, a light that refuses to be ignored. It's the light of God's goodness. I think about when uh, I'm trying to go to sleep at night, if the little red LED light on the TV is lit up, my brain will focus on that and I will not sleep sometimes. Now, there are other times I'll sleep with every single light on the house, but when I'm wanting that pure darkness, I get so distracted, I get so overwhelmed because I focus on that. It's very easy for us in a world of darkness that we get consumed with it, that we tend to forget about the light that's there. And it's not just this little red LED, it's the pureness, it's the light of God. In John chapter 1, verse 5, it says this right here. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Think about the little kids' songs, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You can't hide it. It's not blowing out. God's light is pure in what it is. God drives away darkness. The light of God's goodness drives out fear. It is a light that makes despair flee, a light that shines for justice, a light that is comforting and clarifying. It is indeed a light that saves. That singular nightlight plugged in a wall. It's a rescue, it's a beacon, it's a light that saves. We're still children at heart. When we're in that darkness, we want that nightlight. We want God to be there. Jesus spoke again to his disciples and he was saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, seen in John 8, 12. The light shines in the world and inside of everyone who has come to saving faith in Jesus. I look out into the congregation right now and I don't just see faces. You are individual beacons of light. If we were to look at one of those space maps of like well-lit areas, you will see gatherings on Sunday mornings of churches that are incredibly lit because you are a light. But the areas outside our community that exist from there, those are darkness. And the second you leave these doors and you go out there, you're carrying that light with you and you are no longer having darkness in that. You are continuing to spread that light out. And you can't be ignored. If you go into it quietly, you're a little bit of a dim light, but you're still a light in that area. Jesus told them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that's going to be our focus. Our focus today, my focus with the kids on Friday and on Saturday and next Sunday, is focusing in on being the light. We know that we have a world full of darkness, and we are the light. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to kind of take a, a deeper look in Isaiah chapter 42, uh, specifically in verses 5 through 9. While you're getting there, um, we're going to pick up on verses 5 through 9, and it represents a turn in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has spent his last seven chapters of his letter passing along God's warning of judgment 
against his people. Isaiah is writing during a period of great unfaithfulness on part of God's people. This is after King David. It's after King Solomon. It's the height of Israel has come and gone, and Israel is now divided into two kingdoms because the Israelites have forgotten all that God has done for them over the centuries, and they have turned to God, they've turned from God, and they've turned to worshiping false idols. Isaiah has been predicting and promising God's judgment on his people for their unfaithfulness. But chapter 42 is a, it's like a breath of fresh air that comes through, and God speaks through Isaiah to give his people a promise of hope, even amid their rebellion. So we're going to pick up looking in verse 5. Isaiah 42, 5 says, This is what God, the Lord, says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Chapter 6 starts off, it says, I am the Lord I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. Verse 7, in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in the darkness from the prison house. In 8 and 9, we have, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. These past events have indeed happened, and now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. So church, we're going to take these verses. We're going to take verses 5 through 9, and we're going to break them up a little bit and specifically look at three things that God does. Before we can ever get to, to what God's doing, we really need to know why. We know who. He's speaking to, to his Israelites. He's also speaking to us. We know where it's happening. It's in Israel. It's there with his people. We know when, based off of the, the time and where this is written, we know historically. But we want the what and we want the why. And so what God does is in these verses, but why he is doing this. So when we look back at verse 5, that verse we just read, God is making a statement. And the following verses from that, verses 6 through 9, contains God's words that he spoke to Isaiah to write down for the people of Israel. But verse 5 is Isaiah's his, his preamble. He is making a statement about the nature of who God is. And of course, we know that God has inspired Isaiah to write this verse but it is important to see how it functions. We know that the statement's made later on about what God will do, but verse 5 makes it very clear that the things that God is about to do can only be done by him, and he can only do these things. So let's take a look at verse 5, when it says, what the character and the nature of God. It positions God as a creator of all things, the heavens and the earth and everything on the earth. When God says here in the scripture, when Isaiah has written out, it says, this is what God the Lord says. He's saying, who's created the heavens and stretched them out? That was God. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it? That was God. Who gives breath to the people on it 
and the spirit of those who walk on it. That was God. He's not doing this as a a giant pompom circumstance of this. He's not doing this as a, a massive brag. He's saying, none of that can happen. Your other false idols, they did not do this. I did this for you because I am perfect. I'm the light. I'm the creator. Not only did God create all of this, but he's also our source of life, our purpose, and the meaning for the people he created. And we might ask ourselves why this matters, and it's because God is about to make us a promise. We can trust that he can keep those promises because of his unique and powerful role, that role of a creator. If God can do all these things that he says in verse 5, surely he can keep his promise to his people. Found myself at Ikea last weekend. It's up there, one of my top three favorite stores. Um, I love Sam's Club. I'm starting to love Home Depot. And then uh, I enjoy Ikea. Uh, it might be a sign of my age. Uh, it's no longer toy stores and video games, but uh, furniture and outdoor projects. Ikea books make no sense when trying to build it. I can't read half of the Swedish that's on there, and it amazes me that a single Allen wrench can construct this entire thing. If something goes wrong on a piece of Ikea furniture that I have built, I am the only person that I trust to fix said piece of furniture. Because if I try to give you those same instructions and those same tools and say, hey, you fix this, you weren't the creator of that piece of furniture, it's very easy for you to go and make a mistake. So when God has created this entire earth for us, God has created everything for us, he's created the purpose for us, and we say, you know what? We're going to go and follow someone else's instructions instead of following what you have set forth. We've completely ruined his creation. So God is having to say, I'm the creator and I'm the person who's made this, and so please, please, please follow my instructions that are here. And the reason we're going to do this is because I'm giving you a promise. So the first thing that God does is that God reveals. God reveals exactly what he has in store for us through his word, through his creation, through his promises. Let's take a look at verse 6 again. Verse 6 says, I am the light I have called you for a righteous purpose. I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and the light to the nations. God tells you exactly who he is. God tells you that he has created. And then he's telling us what he is going to do and how we're a part of that plan. The key to understanding this passage is to understand who the you is in this verse. It's not a plural you. It's not a you guys. God is not talking about Israel or his people or anything like that. The word you in this verse is a singular you, and it's speaking about a singular person, and that person is the same person Isaiah mentions in verse 1 of chapter 42 when he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Sometimes 
called the suffering servant. That person God is talking about is Jesus. And Jesus is reaching out through Isaiah to this word, and he's saying, I am the Lord, I have called you for a righteous purpose. That suffering servant that we have here is Christ. This is what we call a messianic prophecy, a prediction made hundreds of years before Jesus has ever come to earth about the ministry that he will end up leading. This is Jesus. This is God's son. So now that we know who the you is, we can continue to proceed forward. So what Isaiah is saying here is that we're going to start a new covenant. Now, a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. It's easy to to make a promise to somebody. I can look at our kids and say, hey, I promise we're going to do this. But when they don't, when there's not a reciprocation of saying, I'm accepting that promise, I'm accepting that agreement, it's not locked in stone. You can't pinky promise with just one person. All right? I picture some of the the old movies where uh, they used to have like the, the blood pack where boys would think they're really mighty and tough and they'd take a pocket knife and they'd cut their hands and they'd mix their blood together, and they'd have this binding agreement. Um, Later, it was reduced down to spitting in your hand, giving a little handshake. Those covenants were nothing compared to what God is setting forth right here. The old covenant was one that the people were operating under at the moment that Isaiah wrote the words. It was a covenant of the law. When God called his people out of slavery in Egypt, he made a covenant with them. He said that he would be their God, and if they would be his people... And if they obeyed all of his commandments, God's commandments, what we call the law, were given so that his people in Israel would be the people that looked like God. They would be different from the godless nations around them. But of course, we know that those people couldn't keep God's law. They were sinful like all people. So we look in this verse, we look in in verse 6, and it says, I'm going to appoint you to be a covenant for the people and the light to the nations. God has already made tried to make a covenant with his people, with us. And we have not followed through with that. That pinky promise that we've made, that handshake, this binding agreement, we have not followed through on that. So when Isaiah is writing here, he is saying, I will appoint you to be a covenant. It's saying, Jesus, I'm sending you, and you are going to be that light to the nations. Because we've already seen the end of this story, and we know who Christ is, and we know that that is going to hold up, and that is true. But at this time in the scripture, they didn't know. So this is incredibly important for for Isaiah to, to be telling the Israelites to be pushing this out there to them. So we know why God is doing it, and we know what it is. We know that God's revealing what is happening. This covenant require, requirement didn't change God. He still expects his people to be holy people. But the difference is, is that through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, Jesus satisfied the demands of the law. Through the faith in Jesus, we are made righteous in God's eyes. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. But there's more. Through Jesus, God proves to be a revealing God. What did he say in the verse 6 about the purpose of sending Jesus as our new covenant of grace? He said that he would serve as a light 
to the nations. Through Christ, God made this wonderful <clears throat> covenantal relationship available to all people. Everyone from the nation who would ever come to saving faith in Jesus. The light that God is talking about is the light of hope of the gospel. It's the message that comes through it that is in Christ. All people can be set free from their sin, free from the, the chains and the bondage that come with that, and we can be welcomed into the light of God's goodness through Jesus because God revealed the truth to his people. God is a revealing God. He's shining light of his truth in the world. That's not all. We see that God is a re restoration God, that God restores Let's take a look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, In order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in the darkness from the prison house. Shorter verse with a lot going on. It's a continuation of what's happening and being described in verse 6. Jesus was set, sent to reveal the truth of God's grace. And here we have two kinds of restoration that God would one day bring. We have the opening up of blind eyes and we have the release of prisoner. We see that Jesus is literally doing this in the Gospels, that Jesus would release those who are in prison and blinded by their sin, and that is the big picture of the meaning of this one single verse, this one thing that Isaiah has written out that God has said, speak this into existence so this is here so our people can see you were no longer blind by your sin, and you were no longer trapped. The big picture meaning of this verse is that we know what we know, and that Jesus would one day do as it says. Isaiah's original audience, this had an extra personal meaning. These were people who had been imprisoned by the nation God had allowed to overrun Judah on the southern side of Israel. For these people some of whom had been in actual jail, the message that one day they would be freed would have given them hope. Whether some of them had experienced their freedom on earth or whether it was talking about an ultimate freedom, all believers will experience through eternal life with God in Christ. We can't know for sure. But this message of restoration was and is a powerful one. We're not physically imprisoned by a jail right now. But all of us at one time or another have been held captive. We've been held captive by our sin. As I preluded at the beginning of the message here, that we've had, there's darkness through depression. There's darkness in our fears. There's darkness in brokenness and in lostness. When we allow the darkness to step, set in, we are excluding the light from our life. We are then held captive. Our handcuffs are, are that of which our sin, are that of which our thoughts, our mentality that we have when we are pushing God away, when we are not allowing light to come into our situations. And some of us may even still be in that spot. So unless we have come to saving faith in Christ, we are still in those chains. We are still suffering the penalty of our rebellion against God. We are still trapped by our sin. A separation from both God in this life and in eternity happens when we don't say yes to him. 
But it's through the power of the gospel that God offers restoration to sinners, and Jesus brings that spiritual sight to all of us who believe. We see here it's opening the eyes of the blind. He restores our sight, our freedom. He's empowering us to give us life, a purpose, and a meaning, and there is no greater gift. So we know that God is a God who reveals. We also know that God is a God who restores. And our third point, looking at our final two verses, is that God renews. Verses 8 and 9, let's take a look at those one more time. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. The past events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. This is God saying exactly who he is, where he's supposed to be, why he's supposed to be there. He says, yes, this has happened, but that new covenant, the new that's coming, I'm telling you right now what that promise is, what is to come. You need to be listening. If you go to a movie right now and you were to watch a movie trailer, um, you're, you're getting a, a tiny taste of what's going to be up on the big screen. You're getting a date. You, you kind of get an idea as to who's going to be in it based on the actors. You're getting all of this is right there, and you get excited you get pumped up for a new movie. I love Star Wars. Um, in August, there's a new series that comes out um, on Disney+, Plus, and I am incredibly pumped. This past week, there was an entire second trailer for this series that was released, and like the nerd inside of me had like a complete explosion. All right. I was looking through, I was like, oh, that's this character from that book, and this is this one. Stuff that like, like the general public doesn't typically know. I'm like, oh, that's a great casting. I'm getting so excited about this. And all I'm thinking is, man, if there was a, a movie trailer for these, these two verses right here, and I was an Israelite at that time, and I was sitting there, and I saw these verses, and I heard this from Isaiah, and I knew what God was happening, would I be having that same emotional reaction? Would I be going, oh, that's my God right there. Oh, I like that character. I like what's going on. Oh, that situation would I be doing the same thing? Verse 8 contains the powerful truth in just a few words. When God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, he is doing something profound. He is communicating directly to his people that he is not nameless. He's not hiding behind something. He's saying, this is me, this is my name, this is my title, this is who is rescuing you, this is your creator, this is your protector, this is everything who is here. He's not another name for a false god. The people who surround Israel worshiped, he has a name. He is unique and specific. Today, people ask, aren't all religions just another way of talking about the same God? God doesn't give us that option. He tells us, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. He is not Allah. He is not Buddha. He is not some undefined benevolent force that controls the universe. He is Yahweh. He is Lord. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He makes himself known in his word. He is not one among many. He is the only true God. He will not share his praise of his people with anyone else. That doesn't make him selfish. That makes him the king. That makes him the ruler. That makes him the truth. 
And in this declaration of his name and his authority, God makes his statement about his work, and he calls his audience to pay attention. He says, behold. He says, the broken system that you guys, the, the mess that you're in, I'm changing that. I'm making them new. And he, of course, is referring to this prediction of Christ, the, the coming Messiah. When we zoom out of the immediate context of the scenario, this declaration of a renewal applies to us today. It's through the gospel of Christ that God renews us as people, transforming us from those dead in our sins and those alive with Christ. Not only that, God is at work renewing fallen creation. Everywhere his kingdom advances, beauty and purpose in life, and the light advances as well. God is making all things new according to his perfect will he is indeed the God who renews. So we know that God reveals. We know that God restores. And we know that God renews. My first seven days here at Lindell, I didn't know what was going to happen. But God knew. Because God knows all. God knew from the get-go. He kind of made this promise. He said, hey, I'm going to be that light and I'm not going to go away. The Bible is his story. He is the all-powerful creator who spoke creation into existence with his word. He spoke into the chaotic void, and suddenly the darkness was driven away. He didn't stop there. He is actively engaged in our lives. He did not set the world in motion and then walk away. He is present. He is a God of action. He's one who brings light into every dark corner, even today. So church... We have no reason to fear the dark because God is here. He's more than just our nightlight plugged in the wall. He's more than just the little light. He is the light. He is the light that shines. And you are, are fragments of his light that leave from this space. And some of you, you may be in this room today and you're saying, hey, I don't feel as if I am that light. Or you feel that you're, that you're not quite to that point where you feel like you're strong in that light. God is the strength. He is the provider of that. You turn to him through your prayer. Turn to him through finding others to invest in you. If you feel right now that, you are, that your light has been snuffed out, that you aren't the light right now, God is there. He's ready to ignite. He's ready to, to light up your world. He's ready to say, for you to say yes to him. He has made that new covenant with you. He's made it with me. We is all as believers. So I'm going to turn to the Lord in prayer in just a second. And through this prayer, I want you to be thinking of those that you can be praying for, thinking of those that, that have not quite seen the light, that you are ready to help guide them to that. Think of the darkness and the areas that are around our community that we can go into, that we can pour into, that we can show them that light. The darkness is no more. The light is here. Because we know in John chapter 1, verse 5, we saw that the light can overcome it. We saw that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome said light.